And we have our guest in studio this morning, who is the distinguished lecturer for the Ford Lectureship, the Leonard A. Ford Lecture Series here at Minnesota State in its 32nd year, bringing in top-notch uh, experts in uh, all sorts of fields. And this time we have an expert in the field of cancer from the National Cancer Institute. He is a senior investigator and chief of the Metabolic Epidemiology Branch. He just came from delivering a, a presentation in the Ostrander Auditorium, primarily for students, but anybody was welcome. And tonight he will be giving a presentation for the public. So with that, I will introduce you to Dr. Christian Abnett. Good morning, Christian. Good morning. So you are from New York, correctly? No. no. I, well, now I live in Maryland. But oh, actually, you live in Maryland. Yeah, okay. But I grew up here in Minnesota. All right. So local guide, where'd you go to school at? I, so I grew up outside of Stillwater, uh, and when I went to college, though, I went to the University of Oregon in Eugene, and then I went to um, Madison, to the uh, University of Wisconsin, where I did my PhD, and then I came back to Minnesota, and I went to the University of Minnesota Twin Cities to uh, get a master's in public health. Okay, so you've uh, gone a little bit around the country, exactly. I'd say. It. When I finished my training, I got into a fellowship at the National Cancer Institute, and that's part of the National Institutes of Health. And it's located in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. And it's the biggest biomedical research institution in the world. And so I went there for training, uh, and I had a a uh, good experience, and they recruited me to stay on for a career position there. Okay, well, we'll talk more about your talk this morning, but I want to turn to, we've got another guest in studio this morning, and that is Dr. Jeff Pribble, who is with the Chemistry and Geology Department and the person who coordinates the Ford Lectureship. Good morning, Dr. Pribble. Good morning. So you ha have brought in many guests throughout the years. I don't How many years have you been coordinating the Leonard A. Ford Lectureship? 32 years. Oh this is our 32nd. <laughs> oh um, when it started my first year here and I went to my chair when it was announced that the Ford family had donated money to start the lectureship and said, I'd like to help start with this. And 32 years later, I'm still helping. Well, let's talk this. about how somebody's gift to the university made it possible for you to bring in a Nobel Prize, all sorts of Nobel mainly. Nobel laureates. Okay, no yeah. Pulitzer Nobel Prize. Nobel uh, winners, et cetera, and the, the smartest folks you can find around the, the nation. The How did that get started? Why did a family decide to do this? Uh, the family of Leonard Ford wanted to honor his legacy at the university. He was the first chemistry professor at Minnesota State Mankato. He was chair of the Department of Chemistry, worked hard on a lot of programs, starting things like the dental hygiene. The dental assistant started our engineering programs. Even though he was a chemist, he had a very broad vision, and his family wanted to help celebrate that. He's also the one who started the science fairs. Really? Um, at on oh. our campus that are still going strong to this day. And we literally have hundreds of students who come through the science fair programs back starting in the 1950s through even the 2000s and 20s. And now there is actually a building on campus named after him. The, the building, our new chemistry building that opened a number of years ago is named after Leonard Ford also. Talk about through the years, you've done this for 32 years bringing in guests. What type of guests have you had in topics through the years? 
oh, the top. I'm, I'm looking at the You're list. You're looking at the and, list. And it, it, it goes, and I was uh, talking to my students uh, last week about it. We've had people such as Mary Good, who is out of the industry, chemical industry, who several years after that became Undersecretary of Commerce hmm. in the Clinton administration. James Cusimano, who did catalyst work, but he also in college was part of the royal teens and sang the song who wore short shorts <laughs> um, so we've had that um, darlene hoffman came out of the glenn seaborg lab in berkeley california studying heavy metals heavy elements and we're not to, talking bands no we're not <laughs> talking bands we're talking new elements mm -hmm. um came and talked um we've had several talks on green chemistry with paul anastas and uh, Mary Kirchhoff, who were talking on green chemistry. Joe Turpin talked about fuels for race cars. Ruth Reck came, and Ruth Reck was a student of Leonard Ford and has studied global climate change. Michael LaCroix Freilish, who is a graduate of our program, but was under probably the age of 40 when he came to talk about his work. We've had the, Nobel laureates, yes. Peter Agre, and Brian Kobilka. And then last year, we were fortunate to have Mark Jenkins from the University of Minnesota who studies vaccines. And what a timely, timely talk topic. that that was. And that one was actually completely online. We are live this year, and it will be at 7.30 this evening in the Ostrander Auditorium, part of the Centennial Student Union. And parking after 6.30 on our campus is free in most places. Please look carefully yeah. before you park. Yeah, and in the, I'm not I think responsible in, for your parking. In the purple, in the purple spots, purple I think. And, and, also and actually, the gold spots are free after 6.30. After 6.30 tonight. And then how about the sunken lot? Is that... I think that is part of the open to people. Okay. But they, they change those rules, so read carefully. Yeah, make sure, because <laughs> you don't want to be paying any... No, you're not responsible. But we've been very fortunate. The, uh, the family, um, spearheaded by Dr. Barbara Olson, the daughter of Leonard Ford, has d given generously so that we are able to bring in nationally, internationally known chemists, scientists to talk and give a series of talks both to our students and to the general public. All right. And today we're talking with Christian Abnett, who is going to be the speaker. He's already done a, a talk on campus this morning and is going to be speaking tonight. And everyone's welcome. And this is geared toward a more general public audience. And it's called Cancer Epidemiology, How We Describe the Burden, Investigate the Causes, and Discover the Means of Cancer Prevention. And as I was mentioning earlier on, on the show, I was talking about how all of us have been in, touched by cancer in some way. So this is something that everyone can gain something from. What kind of are you going to be talking about tonight that people may be relating, able to relate to? So there's three main types of cancer research, and people may be more familiar with the, the first two, which include clinical cancer research, which is where physicians are working with uh, newly diagnosed or, or people who are under, undergoing uh, cancer treatment, and they're trying to refine and improve the way we treat cancer. Uh, another aspect is basic science research, which is done in a laboratory, which is working to understand the, the underpinnings, the biochemistry and molecular biology of cancer. But I'm an epidemiologist. That's a word that more people have, may have become familiar with over the last few years. And I study whole people, and I study them when they're living their lives. And we use those assessments to try to understand what kind of exposures lead to causing cancer. And then we can devise means of preventing cancer by helping people either avoid dangerous things or to get more exposure to things that prevent cancer. So in, are you saying that in general there are things that are causing cancer versus genetics? 
Right. So genetics plays an important role. It's a genetic disease, but most cancer is driven by exposures that we have uh, either from the environment or our diets or other ways of where we're living our lives. The most um, uh, important example is smoking tobacco drives lung cancer. About 85% of all lung cancer is caused by smoking tobacco. And once that was understood, uh, the tobacco exposure patterns in the United States changed. People stopped smoking as much, and eventually the lung cancer rate started to fall because of that. And so that sort of encapsulates our goal. If we know what causes it, we can help people understand how to avoid those exposures. We see a lot of times on TV, there's commercials for saying, for example, like glycosate causes cancer, things like Mm -hmm. that. I mean, are are those pretty typical things, like some sort of a chemical or or is it mainly man-made stuff that's causing cancer? No, I think that... that, People typically overestimate the role of environmental exposures in cancer. Those are important. They're mostly, we saw a lot more of that in the workplace exposures in the past. But as the people recognize the hazards, we have a lot more safe workplaces where that comes up less. Um, so uh, my area of specialty is in more in diet, physical activity, and also in the human microbiome. So the human microbiome was recently recognized as an important part of our physiology. It's all the bacteria and viruses that live on it in our body. Uh, so when I speak tonight, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the work I do and trying to understand how good oral health uh, may help prevent cancer. Meaning brushing your teeth? Yep, exactly. Really? Yeah, and this is something that hasn't been uh, investigated that widely because the techniques weren't there. We could study oral health, but the mechanistic connection, we think, is the bacteria. And the revolution in DNA sequencing has made it much easier just in the last few years to start really understanding what the bacteria in your mouth are doing and how that may have systemic effects on our body. Well, I remember when I was pregnant, one of the things was make sure you take care of your your teeth and everything. I remember having a crack or something because mm-hmm. the bacteria or things can affect and, and do other really bad things. So get that yep. taken care of right away. Right. So now they're linking that somehow to, to cancer issues? Yep. And with periodontal disease, uh, which is the reason that uh, the, a lot of people, that's the most, the most common reason for somebody to lose a tooth, you have uh, bleeding. And every day you have access of your circulating system of bacteria that can get into your blood. Your immune system is going to fight it off so you generally don't get an infection unless you had like a joint replacement surgery or something like that but just because it doesn't uh, cause an active uh, uh, bacterial infection doesn't mean it might not be having effects and so that's uh, something that I'm really interested in and I've been working on this uh, for my whole cancer research career Uh, and with these new techniques we're making more progress lately. So how long have you been researching this specific topic? So I finished my PhD in 1998, and then I had one more year of training. And so since 1999, I've been doing cancer research at the National Cancer Institute. I mainly focus on the esophagus and the stomach, but I study lots of different exposures and how they affect that organ. Uh, But uh, for example, in the United States, it's a little easier to study lung cancer because it's so much more common. So I can share some research that I've done on oral health and lung cancer. So when you say the, the, the oral care of your, your mouth, mm-hmm. et cetera, are we talking all types of cancer or generally certain types of cancer that that, that may be causing if yeah. you don't take care of that? So it's almost always cancer-causing exposures are organ-specific. 
there's not uh, too many things that sort of just generally alter your risk of cancer, and that's because each type of cancer is really a different disease. Uh, it has different antecedents. There's different genetic risk factors for these diseases. So there may be some things which affect multiple sites, uh, but rarely does any cancer affect uh, most sites, or any exposure affects most sites. So, so are there other people where you are working uh, at the National Cancer Institute looking at other specific types of, of causal agents? Yeah, so we have um, my, I work in a, I have a, my department, uh, we call them a branch. I have 12 principal investigators, but altogether we have about 50 people and we are studying many different types of, of cancers and many different exposures. Uh, the National Cancer Institute, in fact, employs over a thousand people who are at the sort of equivalent to a professor level, and we have thousands of postdoctoral fellows who are working with us. So we're um, Training is a major part of what we do. Let's talk a little bit about where you work. What is that like if, you know, there's people listening and say, well, well mm -hmm. what do these people do there? I mean, are you're a, a Ph.D. doctor. Mm -hmm. Are there medical doctors? Are there all sorts of other specific areas of uh, study? Yep. So most of the researchers either have an M.D. or a Ph.D. or both. That's the most typical, uh, at least to be in a, in a uh, leading a research group. We have some of our fellows are, are haven't yet finished uh, any kind of training, and so they're coming with us to do their training. Uh, we have, uh, there's 27 different institutes and centers that focus either on an organ site or on an exposure type. Uh, and the Cancer Institute is a disease process focused, but we also have the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and so forth. Uh, there's almost 20,000 employees working there, so it's the biggest biomedical research institution in the world. Uh, we're funded by the federal government, and we do research to help support the health of the United States people. In terms of what you do, uh, you mentioned you work with live or whole <laughs> people, so right. you're not working... I guess, so you are actually studying people's lifestyles and doing a uh, study. I mean, I'm just trying to yeah. picture exactly kind of what you do. No, you're, you're, you're right on. There's some people, most of the people do things with either with, uh, they're either working with patients, as I said. We do have a lot of people who work in laboratories and either use cell culture or animal mm -hmm. models to study cancer. But I, uh, and I used to do that when I was a PhD student, but now what I do is I, I recruit people at various times in their lives and I find out, I use questionnaires, and I collect biosamples from them so I can learn about their life. As we mentioned, the work I'm doing on oral health, I can collect saliva from people, and I can get the bacteria out of there and sequence it, and then I'll know what kind of bacteria are in this person's mouth versus another, and compare that to how uh, their disease experience. You know, sometimes when I hear about bacteria in your mouth, I think mm -hmm. of probiotics, uh -huh. and that seems like something they say, you know, well, you got to have these probiotics because yeah. it's healthy for you, et cetera. I mean, is that any comparison, anything related at all, or am I... Well, it's an important idea. Mostly what you're hearing there is advertising, and you should hear it as advertising because people are trying to sell you something. Uh, there may be something to the idea that a probiotic could be good for people. I can tell you that most of these have never been studied in a clinical trial. Really? And like, just like over-the-counter vitamins, um, the what we know about whether they're actually any good for you or not is sparse because unlike a pharmaceutical they don't have to do a clinical trial and they can make some claims they doesn't always work out one of the yogurt companies had to pay a huge fine because they claimed that their probiotics were 
beneficial for your colon when there was no evidence that that was the case. So we have to be really careful about advertising claims. How can they make those claims then is what I want to know. Well, you'd have to talk to the Federal Trade Commission (laughs) about that. Uh, We're a research institute and it's an important point is that we don't make policy. We do research. We try to understand what's going on. If there's a regulatory action that has to be taken, that would be either the Food and Drug Administration or it may be the Environmental Protection Agency or somebody else. We're a research group, not a regulatory group. So when you talk about the oral health and you obviously there's a clear link between tobacco mm-hmm. and cancer, et cetera. Are there anything, other things obvious that in your studies with uh, that you pop up and say, aha, this is something you should avoid or yeah. you should know about? Well, there's a lot of things and our the National Cancer Institute website uh, has a ton of information about what we know about living a healthy lifestyle. Uh, the, the next most important thing beyond avoiding tobacco is uh, maintaining a healthy weight, obesity, is a big cancer driver, uh, especially for cancer of the colon and oh. some other sites. Uh, physical activity, as the flip side, physical activity is very beneficial for reducing the risk of cancer, not just through maintaining a healthy weight, but independently. Uh, we also know that drinking uh, excessively is, uh, is a, an important cancer risk You're factor. Drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. yeah. So I study the esophagus. People who drink three or more drinks a day are at much higher risk for developing cancer in their esophagus. Uh, Uh, So moderating alcohol. And then there's a lot of other information that we have. There's good ways to prevent cancer that people can avail themselves of. The human papillomavirus vaccine, one of those co-invented at my institute. And uh, with the widespread use of that, it can completely eliminate cervical cancer and cancer at multiple other sites that are caused by a virus. So those vaccines are very important in in maintaining a, a healthy life. Now, the human papillomavirus, is it primarily given to teenagers or is it for everyone? I'm trying to recall. Right now, it's recommended for younger people because it works best if it started before sexual debut. Uh And if people have already been exposed, it's probably too late. So it's usually... Uh, early teenage or younger is when it's uh, given. There are studies going on right now at giving it at like age five, so we don't have to worry at all about it. So it's just taken care of, and but that hasn't been proven to be an effective strategy just yet. Now I had a, a grandfather who died from esophageal slash stomach cancer, mm-hmm. and guess what? He chewed tobacco. Yeah, well, it's an important risk factor for many different cancer sites. Uh, there's a I study uh, a squamous cell carcinoma, which is a less common cancer now in the U.S., and that's really a drinking and smoking-associated cancer. Uh, what's more common now is a, it's a different form of esophageal cancer called adenocarcinoma, and there the most important risk factors are obesity and reflux disease. Really? and Because yeah. I hear so many people talking about this reflux disease. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have that. Yep. Is that because of what they eat primarily? or? Well, it's, it's a little complicated. We're, being overweight is an important risk factor. A lot of women experience during pregnancy, but usually it goes away afterwards. Uh, it can be part of it. There is a very complicated interaction with the bacteria that lives in many people's stomachs called Helicobacter pylori. It used to be that everybody had this bacteria in your stomach, and usually what it would do is it would damage your stomach in such a way that the pH of your stomach would become neutral, and then the reflux doesn't bother you. Oh. Most young people these days don't have this bacteria, and so now when you reflux, you're refluxing acidic contents, and it hurts. And so it's whether or not uh, they're both sort of normal conditions. And so we think that that's part of what's happened. There's probably something else going on that we just don't understand yet, and the reason that this cancer has become uh, 
uh, went from being very rare to being more common. So people downing a bunch of uh, tums or something mm-hmm. to try and bal- you know make it not so acidic yeah. is that beneficial? Or? Well, I think for, for uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD is a very debilitating condition. It can really make you miserable, and I I personally have this problem, and I understand why it's uh, desirable to try to uh, make your uh, make yourself more comfortable. If it's and it does raise your risk for cancer, but it's so slight that just having reflux doesn't mean you should worry that you're going to get cancer. But it is a good idea to see a physician. Uh, taking Tums is, if it works for you, that's probably fine. But there are some better treatments that might okay. be work better. Whether or not they really affect your cancer risk, that's less clear because that's a very complicated long-term question. But I think the most important thing is that we don't want people to be feel uncomfortable all the time, which reflux can do. Okay, Christian, this is just going to be a real way out there question that I know you probably can't answer, but I'm going to ask it. So will there ever be a cure for cancer? Actually, I think I could say uh, no because cancer is many different diseases and uh, curing cancer is great and there have there are some cures uh, even better would be preventing cancer in the first place uh, and but for some types of cancer we can people can actually learn to live with it and so there are therapies that can keep it at bay and if you can live go ahead and live your life even if you have been diagnosed with cancer and it's still sort of there well maybe that isn't as satisfying as if you could say it was cured but as long as it's not impacting your life, um, that could be another good outcome. So I think we're looking, ideally we could have a world where we don't get cancer and then we don't have to cure it. Uh, When we can, we can cure it. And when when all else fails, maybe we can help people live long and healthy lives, even if they have cancer. So would you say in general, it's preventable most of the time? Um, that's, uh, that's an important topic of uh, conversation. People try to estimate the fraction of cancer that's preventable, uh, and we can make some estimates, and that would be the job. My uh, epidemiologist, that is something that we do. We try to estimate the preventable fraction of cancer, and there are some cancers where we think we could prevent most of it. If nobody smoked tobacco, 85% of lung cancers would go away, plus a lot of head and neck cancers, esophagus, and some other parts of the body. Uh, but there's some cancers that are driven by genetics, a lot of childhood cancers. There's really nothing you can do with your lifestyle. They're just going to happen, unfortunately, and we have to learn how to find them early enough to make them treatable. So it's not all preventable, but some big fraction, it could be avoided. You know, a lot of times we keep hearing about, you mentioned the eating part of it, eating mm-hmm. fruits and vegetables, fruits yeah. and vegetables. Uh, so if you could say to someone out there, what is the you know number one thing you could do to help with prevention? And you mentioned exercise and, mm-hmm. and not, you know preventing the obesity. What are some other maybe? Uh, yeah, five a day is an important concept. Five fruits or vegetables a day. And in fact, I would really lean on the vegetables rather than the fruit uh, because with the fiber, you get more, there's some more benefits from the, the fiber and, and the, uh, the chemical makeup of vegetables has some more advantages. Fruit juice is not a serving of fruit, unfortunately, even though people love it. Uh, it's closer to soda because there's so much sugar in there. Uh, but eating that way is healthy. Another important thing is fiber. Fiber will help do lots of things for you. It'll make your digestion more comfortable. It can help prevent cancer and it can help prevent heart disease. Uh, so there's lots of aspects of diet that can be helpful. When people come tonight, it's at 7.30 in the Ostrander Auditorium here on the campus at Minnesota State University. What can they expect to hear tonight? 
So I'm going to talk, uh, part of what I'm going to talk about is this, this third branch of cancer research, cancer epidemiology, what it is, why we do it, and the, the lessons that we can learn from it. I'm going to talk a little bit about the methods we use. It's not like most uh, experimental sciences because we can't do experiments on people to see if something causes cancer. That would be unethical. So I'm going to talk about how we uh, approach it, and then I'm going to give an example, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why I do the studies that I I do, and uh, I'll use the oral health as an example of how I go about doing my work. So flossing, very important? No. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Your de- my dentist will hate you. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's something that's a very div- it's a very uh, open debate. Uh, brushing definitely is important, uh, and uh, getting uh, regular dental cleanings okay. and checkups can be very helpful because it's just there's only so much you can do yourself. The role of flossing and maintaining oral health is a very complicated topic, and I'm not an expert on that. But I have a friend who's a dental health epidemiologist, and he likes to point out that nobody's ever done a clinical trial that that really showed that flossing was the key. If you like to floss, I think it's a good <laughs> idea. It's not going to hurt anything, and it probably will help some way, but it's, it's this is an aspect of science. These questions are hard, and a lot of stuff that we think we know is stuff that we just do, and it's not because we really know that it works. Um, so... You know, I think that's a question that remains to be answered. But the brushing, I'm the brushing. There's good evidence, and fluoride. There's very good evidence that fluoride really does help maintain healthy teeth and prevents the uh, damage to your enamel. And also getting fillings and things fixed because because yeah. can't crack. So that's what my dentist told me anyway. Yeah. That cracks and things can can lead to things well, getting in harming other parts of your body. Yeah, it's just going to get worse, right? And eventually, if you have periodontal disease, that's where you really have to be worried. Is that that's when you start to have this access of the the mouth to the to the circulatory system. Uh, there's I'm studying a, an unusual population that actually has very high fluoride exposure. And like a lot of things, some is good, but too much too can be too much. Kids who get exposed to tons of fluoride actually have brown teeth. Uh, and it's a very rare in the United States, but in some places there's so much fluoride in the groundwater that they actually get exposed to too much fluoride, and that seems to cause a different set of dental problems. Is there an ingredient sulfate, your laurel fluoride? Is it is what is the one that's in? It, it's something that was in um, toothpaste that they don't, they don't think is uh, oh. the best. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not sure uh, what you're and referring I can't to. Remember. And I don't know. I don't think I know too much about toothpaste. Oh but well. See, I was going <laughs> to ask you about toothpaste. Is there a better kind than another? Well, I think I would. I prefer toothpaste with fluoride in it. I know some <laughs> people get there is non-fluoride toothpastes because some people have some concerns. But that goes back. There was a very strange political opposition to fluoride in the in years past. The John Birch Society was promoted this idea. There was never really too much to that. Um, strange idea. Is that something you find in as a, a researcher and the work you do is, is somebody might ha- hear like a, a tidbit of yeah. something at one point, but it's really not proven to be true. Kind of like yeah. going back with vaccination cause yeah. autism way back yeah. and there was a study that was uh, not really yeah. true. Do you find that in your work as, with cancer as well? Yeah, we hear a lot. It's an emotional it's an emotional topic and as you said, many people have been in personally touched by cancer, either they or their loved ones. Uh, people feel have really strong emotions about it, and sometimes that can lead to thinking that isn't so clear. I told a story earlier today about uh, what we mean by causing cancer, 
And when I say that tobacco causes lung cancer, it wouldn't be unusual to hear somebody say, well, my grandmother smoked for 40 years and she never got lung cancer, so I don't believe you. But that isn't, the, that isn't what we mean by cause. Uh, cause doesn't have to have a one-to-one correspondence where you have any exposure and you definitely get the disease. That isn't the way humans work. Uh, cancer in particular, when we talk about cause, we say it's a probabilistic statement. Um, and one counterexample I get is um, if you know somebody who's been in a car accident and they were fine, right? They survived. Well, does that mean that car accidents don't kill people? No. 43,000 Americans die in a car accident last year, uh, and a lot of them survived it without dying. And so one exposure, such as tobacco or a car accident, doesn't automatically lead to one specific outcome. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating talk tonight. Who can benefit by attending this, do you feel? Well, I I mean... Uh, I think anybody who's interested in how we go about studying human health might uh, find some interest in it. I've really, I've, I, you don't need to be a scientist. I've targeted my talk to the general public. So I think anybody who's interested in these topics is, uh, is welcome to attend, and I hope that they will get something out of it. Uh, and I, it is a chance for me to talk about uh, a, a branch of the federal government that many people don't know too much about. Uh, and we do have a, it's a major research agency. Uh, it's the biggest of its kind in the world, and it's something that the American taxpayers pay for. So if people want to learn about it, um, they can learn about what one one person does there, and uh, maybe that would be of interest to them. Well, thank you so much. We've been chatting with Dr. Christian Abnett, the chief of the Metabolic Epidemiology Branch and senior investigator for the National Cancer Institute. And he will be lecturing tonight. I don't want to call a lecture. Talk, discussing at 7.30 in the Ostrander Auditorium that is in the Centennial Student Union. After 6.30, parking is free on campus. Make sure you Pay attention close so you know if the I think it's maybe the purple lots or the purple purple uh, parking spaces, et cetera. And then I believe that the sunken lot is also but so what a great opportunity to hear somebody who's nationally known in their their uh, their field and learn about something that affects all of us. So seven thirty tonight. Anything else you'd like to say, Dr. Pribble, about the uh, event and uh, please come and enjoy please come and enjoy the event. Um, it will be about an hour in total in presentation, so um, plenty of time to do other things um, afterwards. Is uh, there a question and answer session? There will be a question and answer time period to be able to ask. Um, Ostrander holds lots of people socially distanced for those who need to be and want to be socially distanced, so um, come and enjoy our 32nd Leonard Day Ford lecture this evening. Thank you, and uh, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming in. My pleasure. All right. Very good. I hope a lot of you can be there and attend tonight and, and see listen to some really great information. We're a little over time here, 1133. Time for me to get to some blues.